faith works. Those are words that I have repeated frequently and words that I think resonate with what is the essential message of the letter of James. And they do appear to be contrary on the, on the outset. And yet we need to understand that truth in order to understand James's overall point. But in order to understand that truth, that faith works, we must also understand that those two words are not contrary. <clears throat> and the reason why they're not contrary is because of the nature of saving faith. <clears throat> we just sang about amazing grace. We sang about blessed assurance just a little while ago. The heartbeat of the Protestant Reformation is the truth that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. In Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, we are saved by God alone. God does the work of our salvation. Paul said it this way in his letter to Titus, Titus chapter 3, verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. <clears throat> Paul is very clear in that text. God is the one who saves us. We don't save ourselves by doing good works. There, are, there is no amount of good things that you can do to make yourself right before God. God saves us by his own mercy. He saves us by washing us, regenerating us, renewing us by the Holy Spirit. The text that I read earlier from Ezekiel chapter 36 spoke of God sprinkling us with clean water. That whole idea of him sprinkling us clean is the renewal and the regeneration that is done by the Holy Spirit. God pours out his spirit on us and we are born again. We are renewed. He pours out on his spirit on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Because of what Jesus did for us on the cross, God pours out his spirit on us who believe in him, us who trust in him. He saves us. Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Salvation is a work of God from start to finish. Therefore, as we consider the lives of each individual Christian and how we see that salvation at work, the question is, can God ever fail? Does God ever fail? Will God start a project Will he work on regenerating and renewing someone and fail to finish it? Will those for whom Christ died fail to be redeemed? Is the Holy Spirit too weak to bring about the new birth in us? May we never dare to suggest such a thing. We maintain and confess the sovereignty of God over all things, over all things in the cosmos, including our wretched souls. And if the sovereign of creation sets his mercy on us to redeem us, then we are redeemed. His work will not fail. 
His work will do what it began. It will do what it purposed to do. Also in the book of Titus, Paul says this. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So on the one hand, Paul says that God is the one who saves us. He saves us by his mercy, by his regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, whom he pours out upon us as we put our faith in the Savior, Jesus Christ. And not only does he save us in the past, but his work continues in the present And the work that he began in us continues, the grace that he poured out on us through the Holy Spirit continues to work, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. That's what the grace of God does in those in whom the grace of God is working. If you have been saved by God, then the grace of God is at work in you. Paul said it this way in Ephesians chapter 2. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, that, that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are his workmanship. The idea of workmanship there, the, the root idea of the word, is the same word that we get our word poem from. So God is a, a, a poem. God, our, our salvation, we as the church are a poem, God's handiwork, his workmanship, a cleverly, um, meticulously, beautifully crafted poem to the world of how his grace works. And that's manifested in the good works that we do. As we deny ungodliness and worldly passions, as we live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives, as we're waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. True faith works because that is the purpose of true faith. The purpose of faith, the faith that God the Father gives, is that we would be a people who walk in good works. And God doesn't fail in the things that he does. New Testament faith, New Testament Christianity is not about the good things that we do to please God so that he lets us into heaven because we cannot do enough good. New Testament faith is about the good things that Jesus has done such that all who honor him as Lord, all who believe in him would be given the privileges of his good works given the blessing of his good works, as we believe in him, as we trust in him, we would be given the reward of his good works. We have to understand this essential truth about salvation before we can understand anything James has to say in his letter. True faith works because true faith is a product of the work of God in our lives and his work in our lives necessarily leads us to pursue good works, works that please him. 
Again, we're continuing in our series in the letter of James and have come to a bit of a hinge point in his teaching in chapter one. He seems to abruptly go from talking about our responsibility to the word of God, to be doers of the word, and not only hearers, to discussion of religion. Often we hear the word religion and we get a certain picture in our minds. That picture could be of a large cathedral, an old Roman-style Catholic church building with a priest in the front of the sanctuary standing before the altar presiding over a service. It could be a set of rules and regulations, a pattern of morality given to mindless drones who don't think for themselves but simply refer to faith as a guide in life. Maybe when you hear the word religion, you think about just going to a church building on Sunday morning, giving tithes, helping little old ladies across the street, being generally cheerful, never having a bad day, everyone liking you and you liking and accepting everyone else. Maybe when you hear the word religion, you simply think about your grandparents or your parents who were religious and attempted to pass their religious traditions onto you. My point is that when, when we use the word religion, something comes to mind, and often those who are religious are not looked upon favorably. But whatever it is that you think of when you hear the word religion, I want you to forget it. Because when James uses the word religion, he's not talking about that. When James uses the word religion in chapter 1, he's talking about what I've just spent the first opening minutes of our time talking about. When James says religion, he's talking about true faith. He's talking about true faith that is given by God, that is exercised for the glory of God and good pleasure of God alone. Again, true faith manifests itself in good works. If you have true faith because of the new birth, your motivation will have changed. Your desires will have changed. The way you look at life, even the way you look at your trials, will have changed. We can rejoice in the midst of our trials, knowing that God is at work in our trials. We trust him even in spite of those things. We pray in the midst of our trials, knowing that God is willing to give wisdom to us to respond well in those trials. We often consider God's promises in the midst of our trials because we know that we have a hope greater than the difficult things that are going on in our lives. We strive to be obedient to God in the midst of our trials. We understand that our fleshly anger or responses will not lead to his righteousness, but to the contrary, we ought to be pursuing what is pleasing to him through his word. Now we find ourselves at the end of chapter one of James's letter to the churches here he makes some concluding statements about the nature of true faith or of pure religion as he says pure religion or true religion true faith is that which is pure and true in the sight of our heavenly father it is that which seeks to do his will and to walk in his good works and this is not intended to be an exhaustive definition of what true religion is but rather to give us a general picture again as we're concluding concluding chapter one Well, I want to read for you again chapter 1 of James for the context, and then we'll focus in on just those last two verses, verses 26 and 27. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, of the 12 tribes and the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. 
But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God promises to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Father, we thank you again for your word. Your word is true. We pray that you would, as Jesus said, sanctify us by your truth. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively be acceptable in your sight. For, Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Those who are truly religious in the sight of the Father are, as James will say in verse 26, self-controlled. Those who are truly religious in the sight of the Father are compassionate. That's in the first part of verse 27. In the second part of verse 27, those who are truly religious in the sight of the Father are concerned for what pleases God. They're self-controlled, they're compassionate, they're concerned for what pleases God. Let's look at that first point. Those who are truly religious in the sight of the Father are self-controlled. Again, verse 26 If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Again, this idea of religion is on James's mind. What it means to be religious is on his mind. The word that he uses is kind of a generic term that means expression of devotion to the gods or maybe otherwise translated as worship. It is a visible expression of what ought to be an inward reality. They love God and so pursue the things of God. Religion is one's devotion to God expressed in tangible ways. 
Last week, we discussed the difference between those who are hearers of the word versus doers of the word. Doers of the word are religious people, and the way that James is using the term is they prove their devotion to God by doing what his word says. Now, just as in verse 22, there are some who believe themselves to be religious, but who are actually deceiving themselves because they are very far from it. A clear indication of the person, the nature of a person's faith is what they say with their mouths. Again, verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. We've talked about parallels from Jesus' teaching to the letter of James. Jesus says in Mark chapter 7, verse 20, when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable, and he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters his heart, but his stomach, not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. Verse 20, he said to them, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. The religious leaders were questioning Jesus about what he ate and about what his disciples ate and the way they ate. And Jesus said, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles you. It's what comes out of the mouth that defiles you. Because what comes out of your mouth is what's in your heart. And what's in your heart is wickedness. Matthew chapter 12. Jesus says this, whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the son of man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, even either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. By your words, you will be condemned. Jesus made very clear, even in this passage, that it is out of the heart that our mouths speak. And what we say from our mouths will let you know what a person says out of their mouth will let you know whether there's good in their heart or whether there's evil. We often think about the things that we do externally being the determining factor. But Jesus says, no, it's what's in your heart. It's what you say out of your mouth, rather, that comes from the heart and that shows what kind of person you're talking about. I told you that the words of James before be quick to listen slow to speak and slow to anger were exactly what I needed to hear as a youth and even at times today it's easy to let what is in your heart pour forth it is more difficult to restrain what is in your heart to respond not out of emotion not out of those wicked desires that Jesus mentioned in Mark those evil thoughts sexual immorality theft murder adultery coveting wickedness deceit sensuality envy slander pride foolishness it's it's more difficult to restrain those things when they're in your heart 
than to seek to respond in a way that honors the Lord. I also said at the time that we talked about that verse in James, that it requires a great deal of discipline for our mouths so that we don't spew forth wickedness instead of learning to be slow to speak. But the point is, you can tell a lot about a person by what they choose to talk about on a regular basis. Usually when they're less guarded, when people come to church, they tend to be more guarded. They tend to not let things slip as much, right? Like we have our, our, um, you know, our church speech that we use and our church lingo that we use when we come and we're around the fellowship of other believers. Every once in a while, they might talk a little more freely, but most of the time you have to wait till you're outside of the church, maybe in their home or they're in your home or, you know, out at the park or something like that before you really hear what's in their hearts. But give people an opportunity to talk and you'll really find out what's going on with them. One author said it this way, the tongue is not only not the only indicator of true spirituality, but it's one of the most reliable. It has been estimated that an average person will speak some 18,000 words in a day, enough for a 54-page book, a 54-page book. In a year that amounts to 66 800-page volumes, Many people, of course, speak much more than that, he says. Up to one-fifth of an average person's life is spent talking. One-fifth of your life is spent talking. Jesus continued in that passage from Matthew. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. He says every careless word that is spoken, people will give an account for. You ever think about that? There's a recorder in heaven recording every word that you say out of your mouth, and you will have to give an account for each and every one of them. Because God's hearing doesn't ever suffer. Your Heavenly Father hears all things perfectly. There's not a whisper that he cannot hear. There's not a word spoken in secret, not a thought outside of his purview. The writer of Hebrews says this way, speaking of the word of God, but ultimately, speaking of God himself, he says, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there's no creature hidden from his sight. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him before whom we must give an account. We will give an account for every single word that is said. Back to the text in James, again, James says, if you think you are religious, if you think you have true faith, but don't bridle your tongue, you're deceiving your own heart and your religion is worthless. There are some who claim to be Christian, who claim to be followers of Christ, who claim to have religion, and yet when they speak, it sounds as if the exact opposite is true. Therefore, their claim is a deceitful one. They're deceiving their own hearts because James says that they cannot bridle their tongue. A bridle is what you put into the mouths of horses in order to guide them around. James is referring to those who have no self-control. They cannot control their tongue. I've said this frequently, but the world envies those who just let everything hang out, who know how to put people in their place, right? Those people who have a short fuse and know that they can explode at any moment when things don't go their way. But that's not the only way that people fail to have control over their tongues. Some people are gossips. They learn something about another person. Maybe it's true, maybe it's not, and they can't wait to share it with other people. In Christian circles, this kind of sharing sometimes takes the form of a prayer request. 
Oh, pray for this couple. I heard they were arguing again the other day. Pray for so-and-so. I heard they committed this sin. Or perhaps they have a conflict with someone and they can't wait to tell others how awful that person was to them. Pray for me because this person is getting on my last nerve. You know what they did? In Romans 1, Paul says that those who are gossips are simply expressing unrighteousness from the heart and a rejection of God and they deserve judgment. He says, those who did not see fit to acknowledge God, Romans chapter 1, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They're filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, strife, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Some people are gossip. Some people merely malign others. They speak evil of others. You may be thinking, oh, I never do that. I never speak evil of someone else. Well, when the leader of the political party that opposes your political party last did something you didn't like, were your comments about them kind? Did you choose to pray for them or did you let everyone know how much of a fool they were? Maybe it's not a political foe. Maybe it was your boss. Maybe it was your neighbor who did something that you didn't agree with. Maybe a family member or someone else in the church. You're not necessarily gossiping. You're simply tired of their nonsense and you need to let someone know how much of a fool they were. Paul says in Titus chapter 3, remind them to be submissive to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Maybe it's just a careless word that you let fly in the course of conversation. That senseless joke, perhaps taking a jab at someone else. You didn't mean anything by it. Everybody knows you were just kidding around, but maybe they didn't know and it hurt their feelings, but you weren't thinking about their feelings. You were just thinking about getting that that little jab in, right? Paul says in Ephesians 5, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. In Ephesians 4, he says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. The words you say out of your mouth, Christian, ought to give grace to those who hear. Not heartache. I wonder if we've ever really come to grips with that. Well, those who are religious, those who have true saving faith, show that they're religious, that they're devoted to God by the way they speak. It's not enough to say that you are a Christian. Your everyday words, not just on Sunday morning, your everyday words as you go along the highways and byways in your car by yourself and you're screaming at the person who cut you off, At the supermarket, when things are going well and when they're going poorly, when you're offended, when you're happy, behind closed doors, at the party, you must show your true faith by exercising control over your words. 
I've said before that the picture of sanctification is not only about not doing some things, but also about remembering to do others. In the greater context, James has already provided us with a number of things that we ought to be doing with our tongues. One author said it this way, control of the tongue stands for control of the whole self against temptation to indulge evil desires and to become deceptive about one's own double-mindedness. Control of the tongue also stands for persevering under trial, praying to God for wisdom, using the tongue, indeed the entire body, for the obedience of faith. Moving on in the text, those who are religious in the sight of the Father are self-controlled. We want to do what pleases God until we bridle our tongues and keep them from spewing forth wickedness. Second, those who are religious in the sight of the Father are compassionate. Look at verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now James qualifies the conversation here in verse 27. When we're speaking about religion, our devotion to God, we're speaking of true faith. We're speaking of that which pleases God the Father. Listen again to how he says it in verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. James is not talking about religion that is pleasing to the world. He's not talking about religion that pulls together all the major thought and ideologies and all the best values from the world's religious system. James is interested in the religion that is viewed as pure and undefiled before God the Father. The word for pure suggests something that is ceremonially clean. There were certain elements or bowls or utensils used for worship in the temple and nowhere else. They would not leave the temple. They could not be used for any other purpose. Religion that is pure, is pure according to the standard of God's desire. It is also undefiled. It has not been defiled by sin. It has not been tainted. It has not been mixed with any kind of error. God the Father is interested only in religion that is pure and undefiled in his eyes. This is the same God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the God and Father whom James is referencing. It's not God in general. It's not all the other gods that every other religion has ever proclaimed it's the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ this is the God of the Bible I read to you earlier Matthew chapter 6 over and over again Jesus uses the term father to refer to God Jesus knew him as father and through our relationship we can know God as our father Christianity is an exclusivist religion, meaning it will not accept any substitutes, no additions, no subtractions. Jesus and Jesus alone claim to be the way to the Father, his Father. Once again, James says that what we're striving for is nothing less than what is pure and undefiled in the sight of God the Father. Now, I want to make sure this is clear before we move on. The difference between those who are religious in the way that James is thinking about it, those who have true faith in the way the New Testament defines it, is that in their heart of hearts, they want to do what pleases God the Father, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The new life that we've been given by God, those who've been born again, brought forth by the word of truth, those to whom James gives the command earlier in this chapter to receive with meekness the implanted word, those he commands to be doers of the word and not hearers only, those whom he calls brothers, these ought to have, in accord with that new life, a desire to do what's pleasing in the sight of God our Father. That was Jesus' compulsion while he was on earth. 
He said very plainly in John chapter 4, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. It says similarly in John 8, 29, he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. God called out from heaven and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. John said this of our relationship to Jesus in 1 John chapter 2, verse 6, whoever says he abides in him, in Jesus, ought to walk the same way in which he walked. If Jesus' aim was to do what's pleasing to the Father and we are born again, we have life in Jesus, then we ought to seek the same. And Paul said it very simply in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, we make it our aim to please him. If you are genuinely believing, then in your heart of hearts, you ought to want to do what is pleasing to your heavenly father, to do what's pleasing in his sight, regardless of what anyone else says. And this is not about perfectionism. It's about the character of your heart. It's not that we're going to go about doing it perfectly all the time. Sanctification is a progressive process over the course of our lives. But the general character of your heart ought to be a desire, ought to start with a desire to do what's pleasing to him. And it doesn't stay as simply a desire. Clearly, James is talking in very practical terms in this text about things that we ought to do, but it ought to start, start there. In your heart of hearts, you ought to want to do what pleases God the Father. Back to the text, those who are religious are compassionate. They're compelled to action when they see the desperate plight of the vulnerable. The text says, religion that is pure and undefiled before the God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Orphans and widows. He singles out those two, presumably, because they were the most vulnerable in the community. Orphans are those who are no longer, for whatever reason, have parents to care for them. Widows no longer have husbands to support them. I'm sure the feminists in our day are rolling their eyes at that comment. But if they did, they're missing the point. The point of the text is that those who are genuinely religious, those who, whose religion God the Father accepts are those who are compassionate. They see the most vulnerable within the community and they're zealous to help them. That's the point. This has always been the heartbeat of God. It says in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 18, he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. He commands in, in Deuteronomy chapter 24, you shall not pervert justice due to the sojourner or to the fatherless or take a widow's garment in pledge. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back for it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow that the Lord your God may bless you in all your work. Psalm 146, the Lord watch over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless by the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. We know that the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. His compassion knows no end. He has compassion on those who are weak and vulnerable. If our Heavenly Father has a heart of compassion for the vulnerable, so should we. Furthermore, we who know Christ by faith were once weak and vulnerable, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, but God in his kindness because of his mercy. Again, we read that from Titus earlier. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various pleasure, passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Paul says that's who we were. That was our plight. We were enslaved to our passions and pleasures, dead in our trespasses and sins, he says in Ephesians. 
But there in Titus, but when the kind goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared again, he saved us according to his mercy. He saved us from our weakness and enslavement to sin. How can we do any less for others who are weak and vulnerable? How can we not have compassion on them? Pure and undefiled religion is to visit those who are weak and vulnerable. And what's meant by that term visit is not a casual meeting. The idea of to visit is to visit them in a positive way, meaning to do something positive for them, to bless them, to aid them. These experiencing affliction are those who are devoted to God. In other words, we who are devoted to God ought to see those experiencing affliction and be moved in our hearts to compassion to help them in their affliction. And don't miss out on the fact that much of chapter one has taken place as James is talking to those who are themselves suffering affliction. The believers to whom James is writing were themselves going through various trials, encountering various trials, and yet James says it's not enough for you to simply suffer and neglect the duties of true religion. God still expects for you who are suffering to be compassionate to others as you have the opportunity. In fact, you should seek out those opportunities. One author says it this way, true Christianity is manifested from a pure and loving heart by the way believers talk and by the way they act. It is manifested by how they love and care for those who are in need, not by how they love and care for those they prefer, those who are close to them, or those who share common traits and interests. Love is to be the central and most visible manifestation of salvation. Those who are truly religious in the sight of the Father are self-controlled. Those who are truly religious in the sight of the Father are compassionate. Finally, those who are truly religious in the sight of the Father are concerned for what pleases God. Again, verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This brings us somewhat full circle in this verse. Our guide when it comes to what is pure and undefiled religion is God himself. It is his perspective, his desire, his character, his glory. To the contrary, we must be careful to keep ourselves unstained from the world. And that's just what it sounds like. We must be careful not to be stained by the world, not to be influenced by the world, not to be distracted, led astray, captivated by the ideology, philosophy, and perspectives of the world. Paul said it this way in Romans chapter 12. By the mercies of God, I beseech you, brethren, to present yourselves as a living sacrifice. He says, do not be conformed to the world, but what? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove not what the world likes, not what the world thinks is good and acceptable and perfect, but what God thinks is good and acceptable and perfect. Colossians chapter two, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught and abounding in thanksgiving. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells in bodily form and in him you have been filled. Paul's point is that we should not allow the world to take us captive by its philosophies and ideologies because we have everything we need in Jesus. 
John says in 1 John, do not love the world nor the things in the world. All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father but is from the world. And those things are passing away. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. At the end of the letter, I love this at the end of the letter. John says in 1 John, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. How's that for confidence? We know him who is true. We are in him who is true. That's not us being boastful about our own ability to do good things or to be right. It's us boasting in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who is true. He is the true God and eternal life, and we are in him. Then John says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. We know the one who is true. Be careful not to be swept away into idolatry. By the mercies of God, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. As you receive Christ, so walk in him. We know him who is true. We're in him who is, in him who is true. Keep yourselves from idols. Our goal ought to be to have a religion that is pure and undefiled in the eyes of our God and Father. Therefore, we must, as far as it depends on us, stay close to him. Stay close to his will. Stay close to his way. Again, this is not perfectionism, but this is a warning for us as the church. It's a warning that we must take care not to allow ourselves to be so enamored with the ways of the world that we lose sight of the love and devotion that we ought to have for our God. It's a warning to keep ourselves from falling into corruption, to consciously, intentionally, and diligently keep ourselves from being stained by the world system and instead to stay close to the Lord. And we do that by staying close to his word because that's how we get to know his will. Moreover, as we think about the relationship between these two charges, to visit the orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world, we have to acknowledge that it does us no good if we're so focused on social justice, social activism, social involvement that we neglect personal holiness. If we're so intent on having an impact on our community that we compromise and become more like the community than Christ. The church has to be very careful about this. I think this is a message that the church ought to hear more often today. Because there's so much in the way of what the world thinks about true religion that has everything to do with social justice and social activism. We should be involved in every society issue, every social issue that comes up. At least that's what the world thinks. You're not really religious unless you're doing those things. I remember uh, a few weeks back, I have, I've had the privilege over the past few months of, of getting together with some pastors in Catonsville, and we'll get together and we'll just walk up and down Frederick Road and we'll pray together. Um, and one such time when we got together, it was just me and another brother who were able to make it at that time. We walked up and down Frederick Road, we prayed, and we came back into the parking lot here. A lady pulls up behind us in the car. And um, she pulls up and, you know, we tell her that we're pastors and we're just praying because <laughs> she asked what we were doing here. Um, I think she thought that the church was uh, not not functioning any longer, but apparently she had come to the church many years ago and um, as a child and, you know, hadn't really been back to the church since. And so we talked a little bit about that. And um, there was some weeping. There's apparently some hurt, um, not necessarily from the church. I think there was possibly some issues many years ago when she was a child, but um, she's been through a lot of things in her life and so we we said that we'd pray for her but when I asked her about where she attends church now she kind of 
skirted around the issue and said, you know, I don't really go to a church regularly now, but I do all these other things. I'm involved in the local mission downtown, and I do this, and, you know, you, you show me who else in the church goes and, and feeds the poor as much as I do and gives and does this and that and the other thing. And I thought, that's great and that's wonderful, but you're missing the point. Because it's not enough just to be involved in social activism. It's not enough just to be the one who goes and gives the handouts. God also expects for you to be accountable to him. And he expects for you to make sure that you are more focused on what pleases him than you are what pleases the world. Again, keep yourself unstained from the world. We keep ourselves unstained from the world as we're more focused on as we continue to seek to do what pleases the father. Personal holiness. Personally pursuing the word of God. And of course, that starts with us staying close to him and staying close to his people gathering together regularly with his people. This is one command that I think people frequently neglect when they think about the church. And we're told in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, to not forsake our assembling together, right? You can't say that you love God and not gather together with his people. You can't say that. You can't. Because God commands you in his word to gather together with his people. He commands you in his word to love his people, not just to be active in a social general sense, but to love his people and to be devoted to building up the body of Christ by using your gifts and serving. If you're not doing that, how can you say you love God? If you're more concerned with what's happening in the world, then you can't possibly say you love God. Keep yourselves unstained from the world, James says. That's a command. That's an imperative must. I'll leave you with one more quote. One author said, one can seem to be religious, that is rightly related to God, and yet in the most basic way be failing to be so. The self-deceiving brother is religious, but the character of his religion is disreputable. Such religion has always been a problem for the church, and now at the end of the 20th century, with so many names for Christianity and with what Christians do besmirched by those whose religious practice is empty, perhaps we can return to a healthy use of the word religion. Religion is the external observable qualities of the life of faith in Christ. It is, in this very important sense, the religion of the Christian and the Christian communities is indispensable, but only if it is true to the faith. Only if it is true to the faith. Pure religion is not about a set of do's and don'ts. Pure religion is ultimately a response of new life granted by our Heavenly Father to do his will, his purposes, to do that which pleases him. It is a new life which seeks to be self-controlled with our words, seeks to show compassion, particularly to the household of faith. Finally, one, it is seeks to concern ourselves with what pleases God and to avoid being stained by the ways of the world. May the Lord make these things true of us. Father, we thank you for another day, and we thank you for your word, which is true, your word, which sanctifies us, your word, which tells us of what you desire, what you like, what you find pure and undefiled, what is good and acceptable, what is true and what is beautiful in your sight your word tells us those things father help us to stay close to your word help us to as jude says keep ourselves in the love of god help us to seek to do what is pleasing to you and help us to do those things for your glory and for the good of those around us we pray in jesus name amen